It's 1912. Alma Richards, a young Latter-day Saint from rural Utah, is ready to take the reputation of the church to new heights at the Stockholm Olympic Games. His great athletic achievement also puts new focus on the church's health code, the Word of Wisdom. These events are discussed next in Chapter 10, Give Me Strength. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Salem Back. Joining us today is Kate Holbrook, a managing historian in the Church History Department, and Steve Harper, a professor of Church History and Doctrine at Brigham Young University. Thank you both for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thank you. Well, Kate, to get us started, would you mind sharing some of your general thoughts about the chapter and the stories that stood out to you? Well, I was very interested in learning more about Alma Richards. I don't know if I get to say what ended up happening with his (laughs) Olympic experience. (laughs) Spoiler alert. But I was also really interested in the information about Mexico, both the colonies and what was happening with predominantly white Latter-day Saints living in the Mexican colonies, but then also what was happening as Native Mexican people were able to become re-affiliated with the church after a long absence. A lot goes on in this chapter. (laughs) It certainly does. Well, Steve, you were the very first managing historian of the Saints Project, and we would just love to know what are some of the ways that you have seen or heard the first two volumes being used? Well, it's very exciting to me to hear that kind of stuff. When volume one first came out uh, in September of 2018, there was all kinds of excitement about that. It had been teased for six months in the church magazines, and so there was quite an appetite for it, as well as uh, Volume 2, and now for this one, too, uh, Volume 3. So there were whole institute classes and groups and youth groups that were having read-a-thons, read the whole volume all the way through. And since then, there have been something like half a million copies of Volume 1 that have sold, and many, many millions of chapters read and listened to online. So it's quite gratifying to see how far of a reach it's having. Lots and lots of missionaries are reading it. I know tens of thousands of BYU students are reading it. I remember once years ago, thought, wouldn't it be great if about 10% of church-going Latter-day Saints could read this book? And I think we've passed that threshold. So it's really thrilling. And The great goal, of course, is it will get the sacred history deep into the hearts and minds of people everywhere. And that hadn't always happened before. So I believe that is happening, and I'm really thrilled the Saints is a vehicle for that. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, let's get into the chapter, and perhaps we could begin by talking about Alma Richards. And here we are introduced to this young man, and he has a fascinating story, but I'd be curious what else you might be able to tell us about who he is and and what he's doing. Alma Richards was just good at jumping. (laughs) He was from a rural town. (laughs) He had a coach at BYU who saw his talent and who said, you know, if you really focused on this for a year and a half, I think you could go to the Olympics. And so, so he did what his coach said and he focused and he ended up going to the Olympics. 
but it's a very different path than what we see now. And I like that path better. I like the idea that he had a broader experiences than, than somebody who has to specialize from their earliest age. Yeah, he kind of comes out of the blue, right? Just a small town kid. And then all of a sudden he's in the Olympic trials and nobody knows who he is. He gets almost passed over because they say it was a fluke. I mean, this kid came out of nowhere and he just somehow managed to jump well over six feet. And he did it in a weird way, from what I can tell. It sort of has a strange technique. But the thing I know about him, or at least the way I came to know about him at all, is I was visiting with a fellow in my ward who's a descendant of Alma Richards. And so he started to tell me, his family history. And I thought it was very, very cool to have Alma Richards in that ancestry. Steve, how did the man that you met, how did he feel about Alma Richards? He's very proud of him. He's thrilled that that's in his heritage and not just, you know, his great Olympic accomplishments, but he made some pretty remarkable choices Alma Richards did. Very smart, right? Ivy League educated, uh, Stanford educated as well, and then decided to become a high school science teacher for much of his career. He could have had a more lucrative career than that if he wanted. So he's somebody to admire and look up to and humble too. I I like the prayer that he offered when he was about to make his gold medal winning jump. And I'll try not to give that spoiler away either, but it was, I could take some lessons from him in humility, if not in high jumping, probably. I also felt some kinship with him. He was off that day and not jumping as well as he needed to. And the prayer helped him focus. He felt weakness leaving him. And I've certainly, on times when something in my career has been, or just my everyday life has been really demanding, I've had that feeling of the stakes are high and feeling really anxious about it and needing a higher power to calm me down and help me focus and address the task at hand. Well, thank you too for giving us a little bit more insight into Alma. and kind of where he came from. I think this is such a fascinating story. In the chapter, we read about a gymnasium run by Protestant groups. How conscious was the effort on the behalf of Protestant groups to try and convert young Latter-day Saints? I know a little bit about that, not so much in terms of the sporting events or the gym, right, the YMCA, but I know that there were definitely Protestant groups who were uh, planning missions and especially schools in Utah because uh, they thought that would be a way to bring the gospel to Latter-day Saints, what I call the unrestored gospel to bring it to <laughs> Latter-day Saints. And those Christians believed that was exactly the right thing they should be doing. That was the best way they could help their brothers and sisters. So they did it very sincerely and lovingly, and it worried the Latter-day Saints quite a bit. The, the schools were superior, frankly. So the saints knew that they needed to get up to speed educationally. And then it turns out in the early 20th century, athletically as well, young men and young women wanted to have those kinds of opportunities and places like the YMCA were offering them. And so the saints decided they needed to start offering that kind of opportunity as well. As I was reading the chapter, I thought about the gym in my church, right? This might be the reason there's a gym in just about every church of the world <laughs> and that we take seriously the cultivation of our bodies and so forth along with our spirits. 
my last ward that I was in had such a big gym. It was the most prominent feature of the chapel. <laughs> it was an old building and some people would complain about it and some people would celebrate it. <laughs> but I was thinking as I read the chapter two about young women and what was happening with them. It's, it's great that this chapter focuses on Alma Richards but the young women for a decade or more before this had been publishing articles about what we might call now physical fitness in the Young Women's Journal. Uh, a couple of prominent Latter-day Saint women had gone to summer school at Harvard University and studied physical education there with a woman named Maude Mae Babcock. And then they'd convinced her to come here to the U. She was the first female professor. And she ended up founding both the speech department and the physical, they called it physical culture then, but the physical education department. She joined the church. She only came out originally for a year, but she joined the church and ended up staying and doing a lot of wonderful work. And so her influence at the University of Utah and in the Young Women's Journal, that was definitely felt. And in the case of young women, they talked a lot about dress reform. They talked about how you can't move in a way that keeps you healthy if you're wearing a corset. And so Maud May Babcock came up with a special outfit for female basketball players to wear that would give them a little more freedom to move and expose their ankles. So that was a concern of some of the mothers of some of the players. But <laughs> we may have been behind the Protestants as far as reaching out uh, to our everyday members, but this was definitely something that the leaders were thinking about and, and learning about. I find that very, very cool because one of my most precious family history artifacts is a picture of my mother on the basketball team of her school wearing the new and improved uniforms and being encouraged by Professor Babcock and the like to do these kinds of things. That's a very cool story, Kate. Thank you for reminding us of it. A very great story. And also, Steve, such a cool connection with your mom. I love that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, Kate, you bring up this point about how in the young women's organization, they are taking these steps, but the church here is finding that its young men are struggling with the lack of social and physical activities, but instead they're attending meetings that are focused on religious or academic subjects. Would either of you be able to talk to us about why this was becoming more and more of a problem in the early 20th century? I think young men were very interested in sports and conversations about sports that were happening at this time. And developmentally, a teenage boy, the best way to get him interested and engaged in something is not to have him sit down and study religious texts week after week. So it makes sense that there was a tension there and eventually figuring out how to have more physical activity for young men was important. At the same time, the young men's organization was really reaching out to the young women's organization and they were collaborating. And because the young women were attending, that was working. And they were hoping that if young men and young women attended meetings together, that that would help young men want to attend. It seems that it did. <laughs> yeah, in my ward, that still holds true. If the young women are coming, the young men turn out in greater numbers and they behave themselves better. <laughs> well, it's great to know the origins of this focus on physical activity and things like that and how that continues today. I would love to jump back to Alma and hear from you. What was the significance of his accomplishment? And then how did this accomplishment affect the church in general? So after Alma won the gold medal, somebody said to him, you just put Utah on the map. 
But it, it really did wake people up to the fact of this state that they didn't know much about. And maybe if they did know something about it, their information was probably quite outdated. And then Alma also got some positive press for being a clean, upstanding young man who obeyed the word of wisdom. One of the members of the American Olympic Association said, I wish all of our athletes were as clean as you are. So that was a maybe the beginning of some really positive acknowledgement nationwide that the way that young people in the church were being raised. Alma's gold medal and the real positive media reports and views of Latter-day Saints that come out of it coincide with a long, long history of very hostile media reports against the saints. At about the same time that Alma wins the gold medal, Cosmopolitan magazine publishes articles about the Church of Jesus Christ being the viper on the hearth the snake in your kitchen that's going to eat your children. And it seems strange maybe to us, but they were not kidding. And that was a widely held view on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And the church was, was quite scary to many, many people. Its motives and intentions and beliefs had been misrepresented. And Latter-day Saints themselves had often been portrayed as sinister and scary and seductive and so forth. And Alma Richards goes across the country and then across the ocean and wins the medal. And the reports of him and who he is and what kind of culture he comes from, meaning his religious background, have a very positive effect on reshaping some of that negative understanding or association with the Church of Jesus Christ. I think that's a great point. And just as a side point, I have right next to me, I've got a collection of postcards from this same period, which are, you know, they're kind of funny now, but they were very much, you know, malicious towards the church, perpetuating these stereotypes. Uh, there certainly was this kind of, they're going to come steal your kids and you'll never see them again. So perhaps Alma's efforts are the, the first step in this greater public awareness of the morals of the church, not so much what it believes, but the fact that they want to raise these healthy, clean living, athletic young men and, and women. So Alma's certainly helping with that. And James, maybe it's worth mentioning that he continued to help. He went to Cornell and led the team he was on to, I believe it was three national championships. And many of the records he established lasted for a couple of decades. So in his field, he was really seen as a leader for decades. It wasn't just the moment of the Olympics and then he went away. We might say that we're witnessing in the micro case of Alma Richards, one of the macro things that Saints is trying to convey to readers. And this may not be obvious, so maybe we can try to draw it out here, but there's a kind of motion or direction of movement of the gathering of Israel, right? So from the beginning, you have a few people gathering Israel to locations. First, the Lord says, gather to Ohio, and then shortly after that, gather to Missouri. And so we start to see thousands of saints gather in those places, and then tens of thousands in Illinois, and then eventually hundreds of thousands in Utah. So the direction of the movement is we send a few, relatively speaking, missionaries into the world, and they've gathered Israel back 
to Zion or to places where there are temples. And in between volume two and volume three of Saints, one of the main things to notice is that the direction of that movement changes. In volume two, we're gathering people from many parts of the globe to Utah, to the temples, really. There's nothing great about Utah specifically. It's that this is where the temples are. But beginning in volume three, that direction turns around and the movement starts to go out of Utah into the world. And Alma Richards is typical of that. And by the end of the volume, we have a temple in Switzerland, we have a temple in Canada, we have one in the Hawaiian Islands. And the availability of temple ordinances in European languages in Europe is a major milestone in the gathering of Israel in the Lord's Latter-day work. And that's just going to continue and even pick up momentum in volume four. Maybe that was way too much of a spoiler. Sorry if I gave away the whole volume four. <laughs> no, you, that's, that's quite, quite all right. Okay, so let's go on to talk about the word of wisdom a little bit in relation to Alma Richards. All of our Latter-day Saint listeners will know the word of wisdom as a well-understood and required commandment. It's something that you know not to, to drink tea and coffee or to smoke, and there's kind of well-known aspects of the commandment. But I wonder if we could talk about how Latter-day Saint leaders presented the word of wisdom in the years after it had been revealed. How did that differ then to how we understand it today? I always get pretty excited at the opportunity to talk about the word of wisdom, James. <laughs> You might have to rein me in a little bit. Um, when the revelation was first received, Joseph Smith and a lot of the members of the church were in Kirtland, Ohio at the time, and they took it very seriously, and they interpreted hot drinks to mean coffee and tea, and they really worked on following it. But I think all of the dislocation and all of the persecution and the refugee status that they kept experiencing led them to put the word of wisdom a little more on the back burner. And there is that line that says, not by way of commandment, that further led them to behave that way. So I think there were people who took it very seriously, took it to heart, but a lot of others just thought of it as optional. And that lasted for a long time. It took Brigham Young, such a good man, it took him a long time to be able to give up the habit of tobacco towards the end of his life. He finally did. The members of the Twelve would recommit themselves to honoring the word of wisdom. But you see in really old photos of the Salt Lake Temple, there were spittoons, white, clean-looking spittoons in, <laughs> in the room where the Twelve would have their meeting because they weren't all obeying the word of wisdom. By the time of Alma Richards, I think the Twelve all were obeying the word of wisdom. And it was a time when they were trying to get people to be more righteous in general, and that included observing the word of wisdom. There were still some disagreements about what it even meant really to obey the word of wisdom. Lorenzo Snow had thought that it meant a vegetarian lifestyle. He really focused on that, not eating very much meat. But we know that didn't stick. So there's more practicing of the word of wisdom, but it's still not taken for granted the way it is today. And people are still even able to attend the temple if they smoke or chew tobacco or drink their tea or even drink some alcohol. I should say this, they did understand the word of wisdom to be against drunkenness. 
but to have a beer or cordial or something now and again, most people didn't see that as violating the word of wisdom. It was drunkenness that violated the word of wisdom. Well, Kate, when was it that it was a commandment for service and for attending the temple, you know, as far as missionaries and church leaders go, especially? You know, that was a process, too, because Heber J. Grant said it was necessary for temple attendance when he became president of the church, but then it still sort of wasn't. (laughs) And so in the 1930s, then he said, it is, and I mean it, and that's when it appeared in the handbook, and that's when people really started to reinforce it. I myself see the process as one of everybody always wanting to be compassionate, and it's so hard to break a habit they wanted to be compassionate with people who had these habits and still allow them full participation in the church. But at the same time, these leaders, sometimes from Keeper J. Grant, had a little experience himself with having trouble giving up beer and coffee, two different incidents. Their personal experiences or things they saw in the community, I think they ended up saying, well, there's more suffering from us not taking this seriously and enforcing it than there would be for us letting people buy who already have the habit. It's my own sort of thinking. I always like listening to Kate on the Word of Wisdom. She's really profound insights, I think, and really well informed about it. Uh, So I appreciate uh, Kate. I like that point about uh, it's a kind of a history of compassion. And I think some people might want to interpret the facts as kind of a history of hypocrisy or something. But I think of it as sort of being stuck on the horns of a dilemma, right? You've got this piece of wisdom that is clearly wise. I mean, tobacco will do bad things to you and excessive alcohol will too. And not only you, but it can ruin uh, relationships and so forth. I have a family history of alcoholism that's been hard on my family relationships. So why not then just make a hard line, right? Why not Joseph Smith say from day one, if you touch this stuff, you're out. Well, because he and everybody else would be out. And the Mm -hmm. Lord wants to invite us in. He wants us to overcome all of the things that might ruin our happiness or undermine our agency and and so forth. So there's this long history of compassion and the horns of a dilemma, right? We want to enforce the word of wisdom and teach it and so forth. And at the same time, we want to not rule people out and exclude the people. And that's the history of the word of wisdom. It's a really great history. Some people, I think, get frustrated with it because they see it as uneven or maybe hypocritical. I see it as, in Kate's terms, as a history of God's compassion and his people trying to be compassionate with themselves and others as well. I really love that. And I think so, too. I keep thinking of the line that it's a principle with a promise. And I think for a lot of the saints, they probably... Once they did it, it was something so personal that they really had to gain a testimony of and see those promises that would come if they kept that principle. So anyway, I just love hearing that history and a little bit more context about that too. Thank you. And if I may add, and Kate and Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, there has been so much that we have come to understand about our bodies and about health and about addictions. And we in particularly the 20th and 21st centuries, have only really begun to understand how we can tackle those, how we can help people 
move past addictions. So perhaps part of the growing insistence on the word of wisdom was starting to coincide with the resources and the knowledge that we needed to be able to make those changes. And we see this with the Widsos later in the volume where they put such an emphasis on health and on teaching the saints around the time that the enforcement comes in. I'm glad you mentioned the Witsos, James. There was a time when people started to call the word of wisdom the word of Witso because they had such an influence. They were such strong supporters of it. Uh, Leo Witso had actually been one of the women who had studied with Maud May Babcock at that summer school where they studied physical culture. And she also had studied at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York, which at the time was one of the leading places to study what we would now call food science. And then John Witzel was a chemist. And so they really took a cutting edge scientific approach Mm -hmm. to their study of the word of wisdom. And as you intimated, they really saw the word of wisdom as God before we could understand it scientifically, giving us tools to protect our health and to protect us from addiction. Leah was quite strict and like didn't want people eating chocolate, didn't want people eating desserts. And so that vision that they had didn't quite <laughs> take off. It was seen as a little extreme. And maybe this is the compassion coming through again. The bulk of leaders of the church wanted the bulk of members of the church to be able to follow the word of wisdom. And I think if there was too strict and narrow a, a vision of that, then that excludes more people than they wanted to exclude. I still see that tension a little bit today and throughout the 20th century as well. Some people just are really gung-ho on the word of wisdom and they take it very seriously and they follow it to a T or maybe they find some new things in nutrition science that they add to their observance of the word of wisdom. And then they don't understand why everyone is not doing that. But we all have those aspects of the gospel that come more naturally to us that we're really excited about and others that are a little bit tougher for us. Well, I think that's a a great point. And if we were to take the word of wisdom and and look at how it's lived today, I think in many societies generally, there is a move to a reduction in meat, for instance, in diets. And so the word of wisdom, although it's been a fixed document, the interpretation of it and the way that Latter-day Saints have lived their lives in accordance with it obviously has fluctuated, you know, in terms of adherence, but also understanding of what it means. For a long time, the word wisdom has been seen as a list of don'ts. And I think Leah and John and, and there have been others who have tried to not just focus on the don'ts, but also to focus on the do's and to try and have healthy lifestyles and balances in their diets. Well, speaking of the health benefits, especially of the word of wisdom in connection to Alma too, let's jump back and talk again about how efforts are undertaken to encourage the youth to spend more time outdoors and be more balanced in that way as well. Let's listen to this extract from the book. No one can read of their physical hardships and religious trials without being fired with admiration, he wrote in a 1911 issue of The Improvement Era. The pale, city-bred boy who has never camped on the desert nor seen the wilds, who has never tramped over the hills nor roughed it, cannot truly sympathize with the struggles of his father. We've just finished writing a history of the Young Women Organization at headquarters. And one of the themes that comes through is there was this fear after the first generation of pioneers came and settled, There was just this fear and it came up again with every generation. These young people have not had the pioneer experience. 
they're not going to be grounded in the gospel the way their forebears were. And it, it took us a little while to realize as we were writing, oh, this has happened again, you know, because we'd work on different chapters. <laughs> and then when we put them all together, we thought, oh, this is every chapter they're talking about this again. And I really see it in that quote, this worry about this city bred weakling, <laughs> what does it say, who's pale? <laughs> but there was also at the turn of the century, so a little bit before the time period we're talking about in this chapter, a real concern that everybody was moving out of the country and into the cities. And there was such a strong belief outside of the church as well as inside of the church that you learned important life lessons and spiritual lessons by tilling the ground, by working on a farm. And if you were removed from nature by living in a city, then you wouldn't have those lessons and your character wouldn't be forged by those important elements. So I see all of that going on in that quotation that we listened to. I think that's a terrific, interesting observations, Kate. I hear in this quote, this quote, by the way, is from Alma's coach, who was not only his coach, but generally speaking, a kind of a mentor to the whole church, an advisor about uh, these kinds of things. And you can hear in it, that same message that I've started to give right in my advanced years now. I used to be the person who rolled my eyes when my parents said this sort of thing. Now I am the person who says this sort of thing about kids these days. You know, they're just growing <laughs> up, not like I used to, not, not picking rotten potatoes off of uh, blinds as they came along, but they're growing up soft and they need to get out there and mow the lawn and stuff like that. So I think it's an interesting thing to observe. That is, the quote is not necessarily something that the writers of saints put in to be taken at face value. There may very well be value in it, but it's also useful to observe that it, it expresses the sentiment of the anxiety the older generation always feels for the younger generation coming up. And this is a constant throughout history, but it's certainly in our church history. We want the rising generation to be true to the faith that their parents have cherished and for which martyrs have perished. And it's a fervent hope for people like me. And it was for my parents who wrung their hands and were sure I was just going right down the toilet bowl. And now it is that same feeling I have. And I think uh, what we could safely say is that Alma Richards represents a whole generation of Latter-day Saints who really did well. They did better than their parents did, and then they did better than their parents. So the future is bright. There's reason for optimism, like the prophets have, but I'm still probably not going to quit saying things like this about and to my kids. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for your thoughts and comments here. And Steve, you make an interesting point. Something to bear in mind is that as we read this chapter, we're talking about events that happened 110 years ago. And there might be readers today who read it and say, oh, this was so long ago. You know, why would I be interested in this? And I wonder if you might be able to speak to some of those possible readers and help us understand how these stories might have relevance today. As with uh, many of you, I've been reading the early chapters of Genesis, uh, Moses, Abraham, and those are the oldest stories there are, and they have incredible relevance to us today. I find them to be stories that explain why things are the way they are. Why is there evil? Why do we have dilemmas? 
that we have to wrestle with. So stories have resonance through time and uh, people's experiences have, bear lots of similarities. And uh, we can certainly learn how to cope well with our present by learning how people cope well with their present in our past. So I'd be interested to hear what Kate has to say about that too. That's beautiful, Steve, and I agree with you. One of the moments that really resonated for me in the chapter was when Camilla Eyring and her family had to take a train to escape Mexico and ended up in Texas, and they were taken to a place with animal stalls, and they hung blankets there. That was where their family was settling in to live. And we have so many refugees all over the world right now somehow hearing about her experience really helped me connect for refugees today about what that experience is like. The chapter describes how it smelled really bad. I hate bad smells. And just the thought of being somebody that smells bad is terrible enough. But of course, there's got to be no plumbing there. Did they build a fire to get themselves something to eat? I mean, they were really destitute. And I also thought, you don't know when something like that is happening, how long it's going to last, and whether you're going to be living in this stall for a couple of years or a few weeks. It just really put into my heart the feeling of being a displaced person and, and wishing I could do more for displaced people today. Well, Kate and Steve, thank you so much for joining us today and bringing in these extra insights from the book that gives greater context and understanding to the people and events in this chapter. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.